Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconus fan podcast broadcasting from post-demos orbit on Voltaire Station. This is episode 63 of Radio Free Demos, a quick dossier on IRPF. This episode is brought to you by IRPF, be all that you can be. No, no, wait, that's Pulse. I realize it's been a few days since we've recorded, and I feel like it's been a fairly calm and uneventful year. So to my podcast hosts, uh, Wines, YT, and Ashtar, I would like to ask, what have you been doing during the Great Space Plague of 703? You might want to translate that back into oh, Earth Standard Days, since our days are slightly different. I don't even know where you've been in the solar system this year. <laughs> Mercury do we, do we goes real fast. We, we don't have windows. How do we know that there's days? There's a little viewport. It's like three inches wide, and it's got coffee mugs in it. Oh, I All the stuff falls off the shelves every so often. That's okay. true. Half the well, ship is at a different temperature from the other half. It just well, rotates we've been, around. <laughs> we've been remodeling a Voltaire Station for the last month, doing some repairs. I thought we were pretty safe from the plague, but then they found out that all of the 20th century literature majors had this app on their toggles. It's called Hardbound. It's sort of a combination of Grinder and Amazon. You, you order books and it comes with really cute uh, delivery people that help you with your homework. As I understand things, I don't have this tool, uh-huh. but we really had to throw the quarantine idea out the window, so to speak. Well, I, I've been spending the last many, many dozens of days peevishly compiling a list of things that can affect cogs. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are some, damn it. Lava. <laughs> Lava affects cogs. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> I've been catching up on my sleep, so uh, yeah. What day is it? Wait, what year is it? I don't know. You know, I haven't known that since we started podcasting. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to remember the entire... Uh, well, I got really drunk, and then I've been kind of sleeping off the hangover, and now it's just I don't really remember what day or when it is, and hopefully this will continue till it's over. Just like a cold slap and a bucket of water. Blackout, deep freeze, just... You woke me up, and it's not over yet, so I'm going to sleep when it's done. It's nano alcohol. I'm glad you could join us, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, how can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. So, what's new from the world of Ixundraconis? A lot of stuff. It's been, like, most of a year. Uh, But let's start with the biggest one, which is that we are going to be calling the author of the game Emmy, because that's her name now. Emmy's gone through some life changes and talks about some of this both on the Discord chat and on the official HSD Twitter, which is HSD underscore HQ, so you can hear more about her life there. Beyond that, all of us have had a lot of like weird life events, and it's been a, a trial of a year, so projects have been going a little bit slowly. But there's work on a new HSD hardbound, which is exciting. This is the resource book for game masters, which is some game tips, alt rules, and monsters. If you follow the HSD Patreon, there's been a couple of articles posted recently, including uh, Trancing, which is a sort of a close melee range TTI implant option set, uh, kind of melee range effects. Armor and Weapon Specializations, which is basically just trading technique points for various buffs. It's pretty straightforward, one-to-one stuff, if you don't want to have um, quite as much flash in your combat, I guess. Have we talked about Alistair Reynolds much? No. I don't believe we have. Is this the occult character? Alistair Reynolds? No, that's Alistair Crowley. Oh, oh, th- then, yeah, we, we have brought Alistair Reynolds up a couple times. <laughs> okay. The, <laughs> one of the articles that Emmy posted sounds a little like Diamond Dogs. It's sort of a recent, uh, 200 years ago, development from Spyglass Labs. Floaty, mansiony things that are something like puzzle boxes, something like escape rooms, something like murder cubes. I don't know. Sometimes you go in and they're filled with like intellectual quandaries and philosophical discussions with aged professors. Other times it's like the cube and there's death traps. There's usually something exciting to learn or acquire at the center. Pretty much adventure in a box sort of thing. It it does kind of have a sort of Reynolds-y vibe to it though. Is it no one knows where they're from or who made them or? Oh no, they're from Spyglass. Oh, Spyglass. Okay. Yeah, They're like branded with Spyglass. With notes saying, this is a puzzle box that will kill you. Don't try and solve it. They're also for the very, very rich and slightly crazy. Uh, these are called phylactery spheres. So 
kind of mist- floating mystery things. Pulling from uh, liches, it seems. Well, phylactery. That's I think that just means little box. Well, yeah, as, as a gaming nerd, of course, I think necromancers when I hear that word. Well, yeah, as well you should. That's some recent stuff from the uh, the hardbound world. There's been three new contracts since we last spoke here, uh, including Clash Event, which I can't believe I missed this. It's kind of a rock'em, sock'em, pulse PR disaster with monsters. Why haven't we played that already? I feel like we have. <laughs> we might have. Yeah, I've played something similar. Uh, Cull, which is a frozen mystery on Europa. It's got a really great cover, like a Lynx, Lynx freezing to death sort of thing. And uh, on the other temperature extreme, uh, cold glass, which is set on mercury. And I don't think you need to say anything more than that. So those are all out there. And maybe that's all. I'm sure I'm missing several things at this point. It's been almost a year. Yeah. You were right. Philography does mean small uh, leather is a small leather box. I only knew the word from D&D. <laughs> that philactophy sphere just, I don't know. It's very weird. I mean, it's its kind of like a module. It's its a thing you can pop into and then pop out of. It doesn't have a lot of high metaplot demand. It's like a very early D20 dungeon article. So specifically, it's a leather box? Um. So the 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 phylactery? Phylactery? Phylactery. There's a T in there. Are you talking about the ones that Spyglass makes or the ones that Renaissance no, no, Festival no, the, vendors the, the, make? The, 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 oh, the, no, no, it's not even... The, go ahead. Yeah, the dictionary definition is specifically in relation to uh, Judaism with uh, containing Hebrew text uh, to be used in morning prayer as a reminder of the law. Yep, you tie them to your arm. Instead of leather, if it was made of, of latex rubber, would it be a... Prophylactery. Oh, God, I can't. I can't say it. Good luck with that. Yeah, I was trying to make a joke. Really hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I failed. I'm laughing at myself now. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's interesting. It's 16 dense pages of how to build a dungeon for HSD. If nothing else, it would be, uh, be very helpful for uh, just pulling ideas from and making sure that you at least have a good flow. Because uh, I personally struggle with maintaining a good flow. It kind of feels like it does fulfill if this were an anime and you've been doing like the main story for a while and now you have to do some wacky side quests so that the actual manga can get back ahead with the story so the anime can catch up again type of thing. It it does seem to slot in there. It doesn't seem like it would fit a very serious table or at least a serious story-ish table. It definitely feels like it's kind of that comic side quest episode. Even a serious game can benefit from some like pleasant downtime weirdness and silliness. So that's that's not they're not exclusive. But I do see what you're saying, and I feel like historically HSD tends to be like one night encounter driven. Like that's really a thing. Like the game tends to have fair with the contract has had this very self defined plot box uh, structures, and it does work fairly well. Sure, you can fit it into a contract, but it kind of has a con- contract framework without having a contract if the PCs just want to go do it for the rewards within. So, uh-huh. I mean, it, it looks like it would take about the same amount of time. It would have somewhat of the same structure as the contracts that they're building. Maybe it's just something about my table. My game never really delved into, say, the undertunnels of Mars or other dungeon-like structures that HSD does kind of provide. So... It's also the um, something where you can take the structure, or you can take the basically the framework built by one of these modules and rip out all of the like plot set, uh, plot detail, or not plot the scene details and fit it into another scene with the same effectively story beats and characters and rewards and just slot it into wherever it fits. Maybe tweaking the ending to fit uh, into a larger story or tweaking the beginning to have some fiat to make characters go there outside of just a we need a filler arc here we go outside of a look that looks dangerous let's go do it (laughs) because we know that works with players all the time absolute perfect fit for pulse's great new game show (laughs) it does feel like more of an encounter than like a campaign relic or macguffin sort of thing it's it's a thing that happens not necessarily what a major arc is built around unless someone is like deploying several of them I, I think you could work it into it. I mean, if, if like you had some big plot and it turned out that like some person that you're researching is one of the guys that d- developed these, you're looking for more secrets on the guy. I could see making that part of a larger plot, a, a, a kind of. But you're kind of 
crowbarring that in. I mean, by definition, this is a passive thing. It doesn't do anything. It hides. It sits there. People are the active ones, like treasure hunters or adrenaline junkies or people that are just out risking their lives to explore, that type uh-huh. of thing. These are the people that are going out doing the box, the puzzle, the, the delving into this death trap, essentially. Uh-huh. It's, the death trap doesn't care. <laughs> it's like you planted a landmine in the sandbox. <laughs> I think my my like little twitch point on this is it feels very transactional as an encounter, which a lot of HSD I think is. It's got that kind of shadow runny feel of like uh, missions that you get, you pay, get paid for, but this wears its transactionalism more on its sleeve. Now, bear with me a second. If you take one of these death trap dungeons. And then you let the AI inside go self-aware and go a little bit crazy, so it goes out and seeks people to come find it's, you know, then it becomes a lot more active. It's like an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> or it starts disguising itself as a store in the mall and sneaks in one night. Ooh. That would be hilarious. I like but this I thought plan. this was a smoothie sh- shack. <laughs> <laughs> We'll never guess where it became red. You don't want to know what we found. The the only flavor is red and chunky. Oh. (laughs) Minced meat smoothie shack. Who wants some? Okay, I'm going to go to history from there. (laughs) We received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. Oh. Okay, moving on to uh, IRPF history and uh, origin stories. And I'm going to go into list mode, which means my hosts will no longer be talking to me. <laughs> oh, God, he got up and left. <laughs> Damn it, I just thought of another joke for the uh, mall smoothie shop. Go for it. Because this is now the HSD, modern, uh, HSD version of uh, steak, sh- uh, steak and Shake. <laughs> now I get it. I get it. Insight. It must be lethal. Okay, so history on IRPF. Its origins really go back to the very beginning of Soul Society, way back to like early refugees on Mars. Around AE3 or 20 or so, two groups that became later Marsco institutions were starting to establish themselves. Uh, Marsco Military Defense Force, which is really the group that becomes IRPF in the biggest way. This group is formed mostly of soldiers that have kind of volunteered to protect the Vector Project. A lot of the early Marsco Military Defense Force was uh, soldiers that were defending Mars from spies and infiltrators early in its history, usually like the threat of survivors from Terra. So this probably was about six years before the end of man where nuclear war was starting to kick into gear. Like four years before, there was the nuclear blast that destroyed Mars's biggest spaceport. And so these people were doing a lot of military work around that time, um, defending the cause, scouting, et cetera, et cetera. Later on, the Mars Co. Military Defense Force becomes Big M's primary internal security division. They handle a lot of their assets and handle a lot of their really secretive stuff that they don't want to farm off to IRPF. So they're still around, but around, I guess, 400, a big chunk of them fissions off to become the IRPF. The other early group that really is kind of foundational for IRPF is the Moral Imperatives Division, which also formed uh, kind of during the early Terran exile days from conscientious objectors, people that defied corporate orders or unethical Terran government orders, probably to shoot all the dog people or lay down fire on the peaceful protesters or whatever. That's in the book. Uh, I suspect that there was also some people that could be easily bought off with the promise of freedom if they left their cushy state military jobs or worked for the military for exceptionally wealthy corporations, that sort of thing. Um, Regardless, these were people that peaceably left Terra and were quickly brought in to kind of advise on, I guess, what we'd call human rights, sort of the sole bill of rights sort of thing. And that group still exists today, kind of maintaining things like no slavery. Everybody has the right to pursue property. That's that's a good one. The right of acquisition, very important in this society. If you interfere with somebody's right to shop, you're causing major soul disruption. Right. S-O-L, not S-O-U-L. Those two early groups started 
again, five, ten years after the end of man or before then. And overall, they kind of evolved with Mars Co. to kind of give it some self-defense structures and ethical constraints. Probably they really faced their first major trials during, I'm guessing, AE 50 or so when the credit collapsed and everything went to hell and there was no economy and the big four corporations were scrapping resources between themselves trying to make anything happen at all. Plague was starting to happen. There was brain brain drains from Mars Towns to the spin-off corporations. It sounds like a really bad time and there was no money to back anything up. There were food riots, we know that, medicine riots, uh, daytime TV riots probably. Uh, bad time. And I suspect that both the Marsco Military Defense Force and the Moral Imperative Division really kind of found out who they were on like other sides of barricades during that time. I mean, opposite sides of barricades. I have had a lot of trouble pinning down the actual launch date for IRPF itself because it's tied to the date of the space piracy period, which I have never been able to pin down. And I've asked Emmy very nicely for specific dates there. And she says, well, it's a canon light game and usually puts a smiley after it <laughs> so that also you're not cleared for that. I am so not cleared for that. Uh, my best guess is that the space piracy period started around like 350 or so right after ASR got some really nice engines set up and space flight started to be a, a major industry. Uh, there's about an 80-year phase where it's just really dangerous to do any shipping or cross-soul travel because of space pirates. And then we hit the period where IRPF rises up and really becomes like the poster child corporation for some time. They put an end to the space pirates. Uh, at the same time, Venus is terraformed, and that's just amazing. And it really kind of launches this golden age of soul for like 50 years or so, where there's like none of this dark impending looming doom over the universe and IRPF is fighting space pirates past the asteroid belt. It's like pulp swashbuckle all over the place. I, I spoke with Emmy about this a little bit. And it does sound like this is really like in Canon, kind of a golden age for soul, like the last great time before everything falls apart in 500 ish. And during this time, IRPF really becomes like well-loved. They're still probably the best loved corporation for anybody except Spyglass. <laughs> so if you ever wanted to run a space western. That's that's the time. Or if you're writing like time. steamy swashbuckly romance novels, another good time for it. Space western. Space westerns, yes, very much <laughs> so. Uh, I see a lot of like Russian style propaganda posters here too. Kind of a down note during this period is it's probably when the uh, hot zone protocols were established. This happens slowly as like different corporations kind of agree to how they're going to work. But this is when IRPF, probably after IRPF established itself as a ground presence, they start to be the negotiating force behind the Starbucks versus Donut Beast Wars and things like that. And that makes them not always the good guy, although they still kind of help pull people out of the hot zones. So they're still good-ish, but I think it kind of settles into an ethically gray routine there that uh, extends to this day. I also think it's a bit optimistic to put it like that because... That was really more of like a stumbling through and in hindsight trying to set up certain types of, oh, we, we should have not allowed that. And, oh, we should have defined that. Oh, well, you know, maybe next time we'll be better. <laughs> and then it wasn't. I think the rules to, to uh, Hot Zones are really like a uh, fun game of Mao. You never really told the rules until afterwards. <laughs> well, not if you're one of the ones in the Hot Zone. Another kind of period that would have colored IRPS development, maybe, is I'm guessing around like 480, uh, Vitae starts to be the thing that divides Progenitus and TTI and separates them. It's super soldier serum, effectively. It's great for healing people. It can keep them alive without a heart. <laughs> but it also leads to like the Vitae demons and other really bad things. I think that if you're in a group that is functionally the military of soul the development of something like a super soldier serum would be a major issue that would come up. And it probably created some division between IRPF, corporate overlords, and like unethical corporate bosses. That would have been a hot button period. Maybe it didn't define the company, but it would have been a... If you had a game set in the late 400s, I think that would have been definitely on the table talking uh, in IRPF locker room talk. So we can also now do 40K in, um, in HSD with uh, Space Marines, who are all oh, yes. hyped up on various space medications and almost unkillable yes. and in suits of armor that they can't take off. Yes. But it's all just their bodies floating around in uh, Vita. Maybe a little bit insane. Unethical corporate uh, bosses. I think you're repeating yourself. 
Fair enough. IRPF kind of is not in the news for a while. 500 marks the end of like all positive in Seoul. That's when the whisper invasion starts. There's 50 years of like major economic recession. And then when it pulls out, we're kind of in an area that's defined more by TTI's weirdness. There may not be like monsters in the streets, but there's a lot of weird ethical and epistemological questioning of self and world and things like that. Kind of soul awakens. Reality was redefined by TTI weirdness. It was. It was. So we really don't hear about IRPF in the news for quite some time. Somewhere in the early 600s, they start establishing a major quarantine zone around Terra, around the time that the Red Spire starts going up. But beyond that, we don't really hear much about them until very recently, like 701, 702, where they are a large part of the fleet gathering to strike at the Ruby Spire. Other than that, they haven't really done anything that really shaped Seoul too much lately. Uh, so talking about IRPF's role in Seoul, I don't want to say that. I, I wrote it down with a note saying, I don't want to say this. I just said it. You have to say Seoul role instead. Seoul role? Okay. <laughs> then you could the, say place in Seoul. Okay, yeah, place in Seoul. That's better. It's in the name, police force. Uh, that's kind of like where we should start with any description of what they do and who they are. They're also a corporation, so that's the last thing you should just assume that they actually are. Yeah, but they're a weird one. I mean, they are a megacorp, but their only product is really people or vectors or... Uh, force projection. They they do have weapons. They do have armor. They do build ships. But in practice, the their product is services. They are a service provider more than a product provider. Violence is the ultimate service. Don't think of them as weapons. Think of them as friendly sticks. <laughs> They're not selling the weapons. They're selling the vectors that are holding the weapons. <laughs> the services of the vectors that are holding the weapons. We'll also sell the weapons, too. <laughs> Generally, Seoul does not have a military, per se. They have corporate interests that protect themselves. And IRPF does not really fill the role of military. They are fundamentally the system's mall cops. Their rental protection, rental services, they are not necessarily going to storm something in force for you unless you pay a lot. So mercenaries. At the same time, yeah. militaries are generally have a certain ethos, rules, ethics, kind of laws behind them. And unless you're literally in the middle of a war, and even then there's usually a kind of agreement between the two different sides on rules of engagement and rules of military actions. You don't really have that in a somewhat looser corporate form. It all comes back to the contract, what you built the contract for. Well, an IRPF is more likely to enforce the terms of that contract than to carry guns into battle against another corporation. At least as I understand it, your, your mileage may vary. The corporations have their own heavy guns. You don't rent out that. You don't rent out your actual army. You just rent out security. And that's what IRPF is. I think that's a safe general statement. It may not be a universal truth. Yeah, although IRPF certainly has its heavy stuff in the background. It's just not, that's not their business. That's their corporate protection. If you meet someone that's kind of a grizzled mercenary type in a bar, telling you about the horror stories of war, he's probably a refugee from the Shadow Wars that happen off camera on IO around Saturn, far away from here. In, in Soul as written in the books... There aren't really military campaigns so much. IRPF has some of that flavor. Like if you're trying to run a military campaign, you should probably start with IRPF. Mm -hmm. But in practice, the long military engagements happen off camera and using like exclusively corp resources, not hired cops. Right. IRPF is almost more of a logistics side of military than a force projection side of the military. If for no other reason, then there are no other militaries or armies for them to mirror against or face off against. There are certainly other force projection, but you're talking mercenary squads, you're talking more internal type stuff. You're, you're even looking at like progenitus, progenitus heavy troops or generally smaller strike forces or smaller flanks protection agencies. They're not designed for widespread, large scale military like operations. Right. Right. That, that's a that's a historical thing, like the cat rabbit wars sort of thing. It's really noteworthy when it happens. 
kind of, kind of along those lines, uh, as service providers, IRPF does do a lot of kind of the same medical work and tech work you might get from ASR or Progenitus. They're just kind of more grizzled about it. So you might get the jaded tech worker who does um, web security type stuff or identity protection or asset management uh, instead of like the crazy uh, whiz kid. This is the the gray beard that kind of knows what he's talking about and is extremely cynical. That might be an IRPF type person as well. Although I'm starting to get into like the people you meet around IRPF town side of the episode, which will be, I guess, next week. They do have a, a lot of jobs they fulfill that are not like strictly protection or kind of parallel protection, like uh, logistics management, that sort of thing. Shipping, I guess, too. They uh, they have a lot of that kind of role that they fulfill as well as the rent-a-cop style appointments. Shipping, so they do. So with logistics and shipping, so they are they the people we can assume, or the vectors we can assume, uh, effectively run. Like I want to get a this postcard from Mars to uh, Venus. I will hire an IRPF courier, or would that be something else? So IRPF's signature is they protect your secrets. Like that is one of their big selling points. So if you had something you wanted in a hurry, you might go with uh, ASR has some great pilots, pilots, Pulse has some great pilots, but they're a little more elite. Uh, Marsco is a shipping company at heart. That's one of its big pedestals. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. But if you want something secure, no questions asked, no one's going to open it. And you know that a licensed IRPF person is probably a good choice. Or you just pay Marsco for the higher tier with IRPF protection. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, yes, that sort of thing. But but if you want like a pilot for hire must be clean and reliable, that's IRPF, quite possibly. So, so Ashtar, when you're talking about uh, RPF kind of being more logistics, is it kind of like if you realize, oh, crap, we need a security presence on this space station in a hurry, just hire IRPF. They'll take care of it. They'll get everything in place rather than us having to move in barracks and supplies and stuff like that. Is that kind of what you mean? IRPF literally flies in their barracks because yeah. that's what their ships are. So, yes, it's it's not only a large number of vectors that are moving and moving with uh, organization, pre-built organization. It's all of the background stuff to support that. The support personnel, the, the barracks, as you said, the food isn't quite as big of an issue, but just all of the other bureaucratic overhead HR type issues that come with trying to mobilize a large number of people to do security, RPF already has all of that handled. You don't need to deal with any of that. So, so, so an interesting point of that is that, yeah, I, I, I guess that they kind of mentioned that IRPF doesn't have a lot of corp towns if they're highly mobile and given the business that they're in, I see why they'd be very highly mobile. That might kind of justify that, that they're, they're kind, of, kind of security gypsies. That is a huge part of it. A lot of the company does this kind of fly by fly by night on call type thing. And those people are very mobile. That's true. And like in their equipment list, they have mobile buildings that you'd like press a button and they go boop and they turn into shacks, 10 by 10 shacks. Uh, if it's also a bit more like the military, they probably have like the best catering in all of Seoul because you need to keep yeah. people fed and happy, which sure. probably means that if you need food, you can also call them and... Battle chefs sounds like a lot of fun for a campaign. If you throw the building at someone and activate it, does it do 10d10 damage? <laughs> that kind of reminds me of books by uh, Klug, um, the Terms of Engagement series, which is all about kind of rental military facing giant tree monster sort of things. But they have the best catering in all of the solar system. It's post-apocalyptic in some ways, so that kind of goes almost goes without saying. So now I'm imagining um, but, a, a little dessert bar. You push a button and it unfolds into a turkey. <laughs> so yeah they do have like mobile barracks and they have very few corp towns of their own but the other half of that is they have very strong presence in other corp towns uh, and in fact of all of the mega corporations irpf has the most slashies uh they have the most like marsco slash irpf pulse slash irpf irpf slash tti because they they marry the locals they come from the locals they are local Part of the positive image that IRPF has is they are part of their community. They're embedded there. They live there. They love there. They work there. They're hometown heroes. That's a big thing for them. That's the other reason they don't have many standalone communities. 
and it absolutely positively is not a secret embedded intelligence network. Um, <laughs> tomato, what, tomato. What isn't? What isn't these days? <laughs> IRPF enforces something like universal rules. They, I, I assume they bring, we spent so much time doing real estate lately that I'm used to like these predefined lists of contracts, all these buttons that you check and, and check off and opt into and opt out of. And I think that probably they approach other corporations like this. They, here's your standard contract. We've already checked these things. Is there anything you disagree with? Let me know. It's going to cost extra. <laughs> Basic human it's, rights? Yes or no? <laughs> the, the default contract is 50 pages long. And at the very bottom, it's I agree to the terms and conditions. 50? That is nothing. That is my HOA contract. <laughs> Once you go digital, you're not limited by pages anymore. That's true. You, you <laughs> can write contracts as long as your AI can generate. <laughs> Microdot contracts. But one of the things that is generally seen as a positive with RPF is they do enforce a fairly universal set of laws, you know, like no slavery, that sort of thing. People know what they can expect from RPF. They know that there are they have trials. Um, they may be very pro forma trials, but they still have them. They know what to expect. They create a standardization in a system that doesn't really have a strong governance model otherwise. And part of that is that everybody agrees to the defaults and they don't check their contract very closely. If they do something that's off contract, IRPF will get them or quit, which is, they're both devastating. And, and they're, they're kind of subjected to the lens of IRPF if they do something that kind of goes against the universal codes that the moral imperative division set up. So that's another thing they do that makes them popular is they enforce a fairly consistent standard of morality across soul. And cheap. Standardized morality in your corp down. You can get, I guess this is like the, the like the I support the police ball uh, bumper sticker. You can get IRPF bumper stickers for your for your spaceships. Uh, if you have them, IRPF will like give you better rates, better protection, but you're kind of assumed to be a, a stab, you're assumed to be following their codes. Do spaceships have bumpers? Um, do, do good spaceships have bumpers? Well, it depends on how often you run into things, doesn't it, actor? <laughs> <laughs> or whether Mel Brooks is your game master. Um, bumper sticker may not be the right word, but you can get like IRPF shield emblems for your for your truck for your ship that say that you're you're towing the line. Basically, you're you're following IRPF standards, and in exchange, they will give you a little bit more benefit of the doubt. That's kind of interesting. I stumbled across that in Sound and Silence. So I wonder if in standard IFF codes, you transmit a little image of, if you could actually see my ship, this is what it would look like. Because of the whole space is I would big assume. you can't actually see anyone. Well, this actually is an interesting thing, because if IRPF is enforcing some kind of standards, they probably have something similar to the FAA, where all spaceships are registered, they all have standardized codes. If you try to falsify them, they will come and find you. If you, like steal someone else's identity, you better damn do it correctly or hope they're not also broadcasting because that will mess everything up and other random things like that. Probably very similar to the FAA. Kind of along those lines, uh, if you go into the history of the Shadow War where uh, humanity was kind of wiped out, a lot of it is kicked off by a single missing person case. They couldn't find the body. And in Seoul, even like Seoul, like 100 or so, Someone, you, if you can't find the body, there's something deeply wrong with the universe. Vectors are tracked. There's not a lot of place to escape. Even 600 years ago, that was the case. So now even more so. So yeah, there probably are like fairly extensive licensed databases that are easily available for a minimum cred cost. Yeah, no, vectors are tracked and generally pretty durable. Counterpoint to the tracking, though, is that space is very big. Tracking systems have gotten very good. It's like finding a needle on a haystack, mostly made of other needles, but still. In your game, PCs tend to be kind of light. I'm not going to say murder hobos, but they, they do do a lot of unethical uh, tasks for uh, off-the-books operations. Rogues and ruffians. Yeah, sure. With, with limited morality that's incredibly rentable. And that is a place that IRPF will probably butt heads with the party a lot. And a place where you might not want to have an IRPF person on your team because they have uh, certain moral standards that they are probably paid to enforce. So, I mean, would that be like having the paladin in the chaotic neutral party? I don't know, but... I certainly wouldn't go that far. I mean, IRPF certainly is going to have a limited amount of contractual standards, ethics, moralities, whatever you want to call it, but they would not nearly be following those with the same force of divine law. Thou shalt not turn left at a crossroads, because my god decrees it. And if you do, I will chop off your head with my great sword. Unless you're playing that guy. Yeah. 
there's always that guy. And that's a good point. Is the RPF, while they enforce the law, they're used to this relativism. Like, you know, well, the law is whatever the people are paying us say it is. I mean, they have some influence on it, but they're used to, it's like, you know, well, that's the law there, but we're not there now. We're here. And they would perhaps do a better job keeping track of that than people that just grew up and lived their entire life in one city where the law was a static thing. If you're moving from place to place and you're in law enforcement, you're going to be aware of how laws change. They're also very contract based. Uh, so like if you give them another contract where it's like, this is the morality you're going to follow for this mission, they're probably going to follow that morality of that contract for the mission and then come back to whatever was paying the other amount. Or what other other contracts make sense? I think the, the write-up of the corporation actually kind of addresses that. And they say that, yes, that is the case. But if you've been raised in Marstown or an IRPF town or a... Uh, you, you remember the laws that you come from. People don't necessarily change their law slash morality structure just because they're on a new contract very easily. So a lot of the conflicts between IRPF and IRPF happen when they are in a shifting legal zone. Like they, an, off, an off-planet group has to enforce laws locally. They come into an ASR town uh, with the kind of enforcement mindset they've developed serving TTI. That's a big conflict. Information wants to be free versus TTI. But that's also one of their biggest strengths as a corporation is because of all the megacorps, they are most aware of that problem. They run between the different subjective moralities or subjective ethics or the different contract law groups, they move their people between it. They they have internal specialists that know exactly what, what the effects are, what to watch for, how to keep their people sane and happy while they're doing this, and basically how to make it a much smoother experience. And they have the advantage of embedding into all of these different uh, corporate moralities and then pulling people out and kind of shifting them around and mixing the pot, as it were, kind of field testing the different moralities, bring them back, see how they interact with other moralities. I mean, it, you could be running a massive social megacorp experiment just with these guys alone. You could. I, I think that's a, a neat perspective. And it's one that PCs and IRPF slash IRPF people, really pure corporation people might be able to get behind. But the bulk of people are average. And a lot of people can't juggle moral relativism like that. Every experiment needs its subjects. Yeah, yeah. But if you're if you're going to go, if you as an IRPF high officer are going to go into a corp town, you're going to be hiring from the local IRPF groups to come and back you up. And you'll hit some walls of conflict there as you bring in your moral relativism into the rule system that they've grown up with. And it's not necessarily Mars code necessarily either. It's the local laws of that branch of Mars code. So that relativism is a possibility. It's not a rule and not everybody can do that. Ethics can be hard coded, they can be flexible, it depends on who you are. So but that's an interesting idea that 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 one of the strong suits of the of the uh, more pure strain IRPF people is that they can adapt quickly and do like a social law chameleon type stuff. That would be a really great character idea. Uh, and I think there's some specific roles within IRPF that kind of emphasize that, like the um, arbiters that are not judge during executioner, but they're like simultaneously lawyer and legislator, lawyer and legislator. I'm also hearing a subtext of, and this sort of IRPF relativism would not fly in old earth 2020. <laughs> well, yeah, no, wait, are you joking? I can't tell. This is, this is a post irony period. Uh, I can't tell either. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Usually when we, we go into these, um, deep dives into the megacorps, even kind of talking about the sort of alternate readings and conspiracies about IRPF or about, about the megacorp. And there aren't that many about IRPF. They're, they're really kind of straight laced. There, there are two kind of big dark side views of IRPF. And one is the obvious one that they are really, really, really well organized and are just waiting to turn all of Seoul into a totalitarian state when they need to, when they throw the law and order switch. Because um, you have like the biggest space fleet in in the world, in Seoul, and really good communication, really good like offline communication as well. So yeah, that kind of the idea that they can suddenly create a police state that goes over all of Seoul is is still there in the back of people's heads. The other alternate view of IRPF is that is kind of the opposite that their moral relativism and their social 
confusion is so great that they're always on the brink of like an internal civil war, just fighting over different interpretations, which is an interesting idea. And I think you can kind of view that in like a comedic Terry Gilliam bureaucracy structure. But there really aren't that many other alt views of IRPF beyond those. I mean, what they are is controversial already. You can, but that type of megacorp civil war is the foundation of a lot of different campaign ideas. Setting that into IRPF, it becomes a very hot war, a very shooting war, often taking place everywhere because IRPF is largely everywhere. But if you want your space battles, that's how you get your space battles. But thinking of like some recent TV series like The Boys, not a series, but The Watchmen, uh, where you have conflict between the forces of law and order, the, the group that people really look up to, uh, that's kind of got its own fun and excitement as well. IRPF isn't superheroes, but they are heroes. And mall cops. Are those really, really the only two conspiracy theories about RPF? Uh, that are written in the books? Yeah, everything else is kind of just builds off of those two ideas. I mean, the biggest one is that they are on the edge of locking down all of soul and martial law at any point in time. Uh-huh. That's the single biggest like threat of IRPF. When mall cops run the mall. Yeah. And so what are the characteristics of their ships? I mean, they, they make tough ships, but... Are they large? I'll probably go in. I'll probably go into that next episode because okay. that's what we have instead of corp towns. Sure, but um, they're meant to be lived in. They live in their ships, and if you imagine any scene on the large ships in Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. that's what that's what IRPF ships are like. Okay, we'll get there though. Sure. Are we talking about corp rivalries now, or is that sure. next time? We can do corp rivalries. Sorry, I was about to say, does IRPF have many corp rivalries? They seem pretty ubiquitous. So. Um, well, the big one would be Spyglass, which is actually kind of funny because when you look at them, they both have the same basic idea, which is we'll protect your secrets if you give us enough money. <laughs> <laughs> Just different lensing on yeah, different, different methods on the same idea. Yeah. Um, now, the IRPF and Spyglass rivalry is like deep and intense and it goes back a long time. And the biggest root cause of it is that IRPF protects secrets and Spyglass unpacks them and shares them to the highest bidder. I mean, besides, like, cops and robbers, spy versus spy, that's the heart of it. There's also got to be a little bit of tension in that spyglass corp towns just do not seem to be IRPF-friendly at all. But, yeah, that that culture clash is is big. Uh, All law, thinking about law all the time versus defining yourself morality. And it's it's bottom-up morality defined by the people rather than top-down morality defined by the highest bidder or the corporation. So, again, very different mindsets. The uh, new Megacorp, uh, Lumen IRPF. Lumen definitely has transportation bypass that really kind of infringes and bypasses on a lot of what IRPF runs on. Yeah. Lumen is the other corporation that will not hire IRPF. They they, they stand alone. They They don't hire that kind of contractor. They don't really need it. Yeah, I was about to say, like, Lumen seems to be very much its uh, own almost self-contained beast. Um, they, they're they service providers, which is a big thing for for IRBF as well. Well, they're disruptors. Yeah. Are they big enough to be service providers yet? They're redefining shipping, definitely. But they're still in the disruption phase. Yeah, yeah, given their general... Moral relativity is not the word for a bunch of cogsunes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're disruptive in, in the extreme. And that's another reason that Law & Order is not a big fan of them. And also, I suspect that everybody is trying to figure out what went on with them and are desperately trying to find information. Um, they're probably hiring a lot of IRPF investigators still. Uh, and they won't get answers. But um, yeah, they're not, they're not friendly either. But they're too new to really have an established rivalry and too unknown as well. Well... Quick transportation is not the only thing that Lumen offers. The stealth transportation or the miniaturization transportation allows you to drop very, very large weapons through, say, IRPF roadblocks. You can ship fleets. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that is is the thing. Yeah, they are able to get past a lot of barricades and things like that and presumably know how. So, yeah, disruptive technology is not going to be IRPF's friend either. But I think they're still too new to really, like, there aren't patterns built around Lumen yet because they're so new and so crazy. It, uh, with a lot of the stuff around Lumen, it almost sounds like they are no one's friend and just kind of <laughs> like, yeah, they're a service provider and they do a lot of stuff, but they also make everyone very mad. Yeah, Almost like a bunch of 
Kogsune is sitting in a box somewhere going, hey, what happens when you push this lever? Hey, what happens when we push that lever? Yeah, yeah, another social experiment. <laughs> They're too useful to get rid of completely, but everyone really wants to. But so far as the main rivalry goes, uh, IRPF takes it very seriously. They they view Spyglass as a menace and a problem. Right. Sorry about that. Yeah, Spy, Spyglass tends to laugh off the rivalry more than uh, IRPF does. Spyglass doesn't really have anything to lose. They're, they're just there for the mayhem in some ways. It's their game. Spyglass is a social game and IRPF is a... Spy, Spyglass is more like the Mal and <laughs> IRPF is more like, uh, I don't know, Catan? I, I fear your analogy is going to break down at some point in time. <laughs> oh, in it definitely will. Ended. I think it already has. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of a game with a lot of very str uh, strict rules. and mm -hmm. I'd, I'd go with chess. It could be chess. Sure. Or, or backgammon. No one fun plays backgammon. <laughs> I like backgammon. Uh. There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. So this is the part of the episode where we talk about what the hosts thought was awesome this week, except that it's really more like this year because we haven't had a moment together like this since January. Good Lord. Um, so I'd like to keep things brief because it's there's been a lot of news, <laughs> a lot of news. So just the highlights this time. Well, I think the possibility of life on Venus is pretty mind blowing. It's probably going to end up to just be some weird chemistry, but... There's some smart people who are very interested right now, and I'm curious to hear where this goes. So on that, the evidence for life on Venus, quote unquote, definitely we're in pop culture, pop science journalism here, is the presence of phosphine fumes in Venus's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like sewer gas slash certain forms of decay type gas and is a signature of um, biological activity for sure. But... Those those traces are also found on Jupiter. Right, right. It, so, well, this, the the difference is that this is something which would degrade very, very quickly. I mean, there's something which is also naturally in the Earth's atmosphere, but it degrades very quickly. There's more of it than there should be, and so something is going on that they don't understand. Which, again, is probably just some chemical process that they're not privy to. But it's exciting either way. Yeah, that has been big news in astronomy lately. Yeah. I have three articles that caught my attention over the last few weeks. One of them is Hasbro has authorized a licensed Masters of the Universe tabletop role-playing game. Wines is shaking his head sadly at me. You yourself can be fun. a new something man. <laughs> I like his costume. Sure. More than his healthy. The headline in this one stopped me. Transsexual Satanist anarchist with a... F the police slogan wins Republican County Sheriff nomination. Cool. She's really cute. It was an un uncontested election, <laughs> but still. And pun of the year, Las Vegas strippers uh, who are having a lot of trouble with the lack of travel and physical contact in Vegas, obviously. Uh, the headline was Las Vegas strippers respond to COVID with sorry, we're clothed signs. That's a good one. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. Um, do you want me to explain it to you, Ashtar? <laughs> no, no, I get it. Okay. I, I get it. Uh, anybody See, else? I too am often clothed, so yeah. Yeah. I can yeah, relate. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> At some point, we are going to have to have a serious talk about Elon Musk's mind control chips uh, because that's going to come up in conversation at some point in time, maybe next week. Sure. Uh, but I have a lot now, of opinions on that. None of them are very good. <laughs> it doesn't make me super excited because, as I understand it, it's a slightly more consumer packaged of what we already have at the medical scale. So, okay, it's a it's a win for marketing, but if it's not really a technological shift, you can read a pig's mind. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, have we talked about the Starlink uh, satellite streaks? No. no. Uh, speaking of Elon Musk news, how the, the Starlink satellites are in low enough orth, Earth orbit that if you point a satellite over where they're orbiting, you just see a band of white that basically blocks out all the stars, and it's causing some major issues with observation. Huh. Telescope. 
if you point satellites at other satellites. <laughs> uh, so did I say satellite? Yeah, I, I did mean optical telescope or radio telescope. Oh. It just it's it screws up anything you can see from Earth, and you can actually oh. see it in. The, if you go out to where it's dark enough, you can actually see it overhead when you're driving, wow. which is terrifying. Oh, wow, have you seen that? Person? I didn't know. I never. Well, I haven't but, driven in the. But in the internet. The internet. Uh, it reminded me. Uh, what was it? The 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 holographic display around Mars. Oh, the glare band that, or whatever. But not no. programmed. <laughs> with with no plan. <laughs> yeah. The glitter band. And no was... way to take it down or turn it off. Ooh. Huh. Giant nets. Yeah, I have seen a lot of like astronomers complaining about X, Y, and Z articles regarding that. So I guess that's a new frontier for pollution. What was space pollution? What was the plan? Collect a billion dollars in small bills, stitch them all together, and put a net in orbit around the Earth. <laughs> I mean, I know they call it a golden parachute or the cash parachute, but I don't think it works quite that literally. <laughs> I mean, that's pollution that we've known about for a very long time, and we've had satellites that either break up in mid or upper orbit, or satellites that have collided and spread debris along. It's it's a known problem, and there there are definitely some solutions to it. They're just not good solutions. It's just so, a stronger and more organized version of same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 basically just a really bad version of Indian flares. So I remember the old telecom satellite network, the the Indium satellites. Yeah, because there were supposed to be the same number of set. Like uh, it's it's indium, like the element, because there were supposed to be a, however many satellites as ours, indium's elemental thing, and then there ended up being a few dozen extra. But they had <laughs> giant r- reflectors for their for their solar panels that, when they were in the exact right position, and because it was satellites within an orbit, you could calculate this. Uh, you could literally drive out, and there would be a giant streak across the sky as it passed overhead, because it was literally reflecting sunlight back down at you. And now they're all falling out of orbit. So if you want to see an indium flare, you better see it sooner rather than later. I'm, I'm so glad we could get together again, even at a distance exceeding several hundred million kilometers. I hope we can get back on track with the recording schedule and come back to HSD with more content soon. So hopefully in a few weeks, we'll see you all again. Thank you for joining us and um, catch you out our line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.